Hey, you're listening to Deep Thoughts. It's a podcast exploring aspects of the Christian faith a little more deeply. And I'm your host, Matt Schantz. And let's face it, when people complain that masculinity is toxic, they often point to evangelical men as their prime example. But findings from the social sciences debunk those charges. Research shows that committed Christian men who attend church regularly test out as the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. These facts show that Christianity has the power to overcome toxic behavior in men and reconcile the sexes. An unexpected finding that has stood up to rigorous empirical testing. My guest advocates that we should be bold in bringing it into the public square, and I think she does that very well in her new book and in this conversation in this episode. My guest is Nancy Piercy. She's the author of The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, as well as Love Thy Body, The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and Total Truth. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. She has been quoted in The New Yorker and Newsweek, highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today, and hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. In other words, she's the ideal guest to have on a podcast called Deep Thoughts. So now, here's my deep conversation with Professor Nancy Piercy. Hi, Professor Piercy. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And we were just chatting offline. We did this a few years ago and it was a phone conversation. I'm really glad we can do this over Zoom. Thanks for coming back on. Yeah, it's good to see you this time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Likewise. Um, well, I want to uh, I want to get right into the book. I love the play on words that you do in your latest book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, uh, a play, of course, on the words toxic masculinity and um, very common term here all the time. What I was um, intrigued to discover, uh, you seemed to discover as well in, in your research that um, this is an older, this is an older issue than maybe we think. We think toxic masculinity, that's a, a Me Too movement kind of a thing, response, but but you have, uh, you, yeah, you draw out the fact that, no, this has been around for a while. Can you maybe link that for us a little bit? Yeah, that is surprising, isn't it? Because most people think second wave feminism, 1960s, it actually goes back all the way to the Industrial Revolution. You you start to see language become negative toward men much, much earlier. So before the Industrial Revolution, men worked alongside their wives and children all day on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation on men focused much more on their caretaking role. In fact, um, this is a, a surprising historical fact. Most books on parenting back then were addressed to fathers. You know, if you go to a typical bookstore today, they're mostly just to mothers. So they really did see the father as a primary parent. And and men did spend as much time with their children during the day as, as mothers did. In fact, it's fun to, to read even the secular historians talk about it because, you know, it was also a very Christian period of our, uh, our nation's history. You know, North America yep. was very Christian at the time. And so even secular historians say, the concept of masculine virtue back then was duty to God and man, duty to God and man. So the question is, how did we lose that? Well, the industrial revolution took work out of the home. And of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time, they were not working with people they loved and had a moral bond with Mm. their family members, but they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And that's where you start to see the language change. People began to protest that men were becoming egocentric, you know, self-interested, greedy and acquisitive, using the language of the day, 
Mm. And even complaining that men were turning their career into an idol. Uh, That was the language at the time, too, because up until then, you worked hard, but you worked for your family. But now men began to work more for personal advancement and financial success and so on. And so, so I was shocked to see in the 19th century, there was already language that was almost as negative as what we see today. And that was the first time that negative language was applied to the male character. Hmm. Yeah, I found it fascinating. You mentioned something about even, is this right? The father being seen in some of the older documents you were reading, um, the father being seen even as the primary parent or, or raising of the children. Like, like now it seems as though you look at parenting books and they've got floral patterns on the front because they're more, you know, I don't know, tailored for moms or something, but that, but you found the opposite. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Now, of course, naturally mothers have more to do with infancy, (laughs) breastfeeding Mm, and so mm, on. mm -hmm. But Certainly by the time that uh, the father became more involved in spiritual and intellectual training. And so, yes, the father was considered the primary parent and he was responsible for leading family devotions, family Bible reading at night. Um, My my book, I um, included several uh, illustrations because, you know, history is kind of hard for us to picture without without, you know, engravings from the time. And it was very common. I found lots of them. I had to choose one. Hmm. Lots of images of the family sitting around the kitchen table and the father is reading from the Bible. And you've got multiple generations sitting around, you know, not only his wife and kids, but the next generation with their baby in in a cradle Hmm. and the earlier generation, the grandparents also sitting there. So it was very much oriented towards fathers having responsibility for the, not just the immediate family, but the extended family and even people living with them, like servants or hired hands that were more common back then. Hmm. You know, the, the household wasn't just a nuclear family. Even back to Martin Luther, by the way, I quote him on this because he said, um, you know, he, he wrote a catechism, a Lutheran catechism. And he says at the beginning of it, you know, it is the duty of the father to make sure he is catechizing hmm his family, as well as the servants and making sure that they're learning about God every week. He should quiz them every week, you know, and make, make sure they're still learning more, uh, you know, about the Bible and about theology and so on. So it was absolutely considered the father's job to be the one to train and train and educate his family on the things of God, Hmm. as well as, of course, practical things, since he was teaching his, especially his sons, the skills Hmm. he would need for the adult life. Hmm. So you note something going on there, this change that happens in the Industrial Revolution, and these, these men, these husbands, fathers are leaving the home for, you know, working all day somewhere else. That's a real distinct change. Um, we're going to use the, the conversation. We're going to talk about masculinity a lot and toxic masculinity. Would you just mind defining those? There's, there's this shift that happens in the industrial revolution and we start to see the beginnings of this trend of toxic masculinity or masculinity gone bad. And so what do you mean by the phrase toxic masculinity? And then maybe what's a, what's a, a, a base definition of masculinity itself. I love what you say early on in your book about um, a good man and a real man and like how different some of those are. So definitions are going to be very broad or mean different things. Well, yeah. Well, that would be a good way, way to start explaining masculinity because it's actually from a sociological study, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's we're not making up these issues. So I start the book with this. I'll, I'll give you some background. Um, this has proven to be the most controversial book I've written. And I always teach the manuscript in my classes and I lead reading groups. I like to get a lot of feedback. Hmm. And to my great surprise, when they talked about it with their family and friends, invariably the first question was, whose side is she on? (laughs) With that tone. Um, And men tended to just assume that a woman writing a book on masculinity would be a male bashing feminist. Uh, Yeah. And more progressive types just assumed that I was a reactionary, right wing, you know, uh-huh. um, culture warrior or whatever. Yeah. So it was amazing to me. I had to rewrite the opening chapter multiple times just to sort of get people over that initial suspicion. Hmm. And this study is what I used. Um, 
it's by a sociologist who's not a Christian, but he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this clever experiment where he would ask young men two questions. He would ask, what does it mean to be a good man? You know, if you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And the sociologist said young men all around the world had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing things like duty, honor, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing, Mm -hmm. look out for the little guy, Mm -hmm. be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. And he would say, where did you learn that? And the young men would say, I don't know. It's just in the air we breathe. (laughs) Or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. So then he would follow up with a second question and he'd say, but what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men themselves would say, no, 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 that's completely different. That means to be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, um, suck it up, um, be competitive, get rich, get laid, using Mm. their language. Mm. Mm. And so he concluded the, the sociologist concluded that men do have this inherent, innate sense of what it means to be a good man. And, you know, as a non-Christian, he has no way to explain that really, but we would say they're made in God's image. And right. so, yes, they do have this inherent universal understanding of what it means to be the good man. Or we might call it part of general revelation, right? what, what people know just because they're made in God's image, live in God's world, uh, apart from special revelation, which is the Bible. Because these are most of these countries did not have a Christian background, and they mm. still knew what the good man was. Yep. But they also feel cultural pressure to be the quote unquote real man, which huh. does involve quite different traits, which can become toxic if they're separated from a moral ideal. Right. Um, they can slide into being dominance and um, entitlement, control, and so on, and so. When I put that at the beginning of the book, it really helped because people were able to say, oh, okay, we're not just anti-masculinity or pro-masculinity. You know, we can, in fact, make distinctions. We can, in fact, say that we're, we're for masculinity created in God's image. Yeah. Um, but we can think critically about the secular definitions of masculinity that are out there today and that are, that are you know, trapping even a lot of Christian young men today. So I'll, I'll just, this just came through my email. So I'll, I'll give you this example. One of my former students now teaches high school. And she said, all of my male students are fans of Andrew Tate. Huh. Um, but in case, in case people don't know, Andrew Tate, Andrew Tate has made his, uh, made his mark by fast women, fast money, you know, yeah. um, fast cars. And openly has said in, in um, that he's a pimp, that he's made his money through pro- producing pornography. But so here was a woman, uh, you know, former student of mine saying, I, I'm teaching and my male students are into Andrew Tate. In fact, she said they're using Andrew Tate quotes in the yearbook. Oh. I said, where do you teach? She's at a classical Christian school. Wow. So even Christian young men are starting to say, you know, they're reaching out for positive mm-hmm patterns models of masculinity and if we're not giving them biblical models they will reach out to these online influencers like andrew tate right that is fascinating yeah yeah i think you know young boys growing up they're like what does it mean to be a man and what a confusing time to try and figure that out and um yeah that's that is wild it's interesting you know like there's um uh, there's so many TV shows, uh, typically comedies that show the, the, the main character, the dad or whatever is just a bumbling buffoon and the, the mom has to come along and fix everything like Homer Simpson in the Simpsons is a classic example, but you know, Al Bundy with married with children stuff before that you referenced a researcher who analyzed more than 2000 media portrayals of men who found over 75% of all representations portrayed them as villains, aggressors, perverts, and philanderers. Um, I'd be interested to hear your take on on why the media so often portrays, you know, dads as buffoons or or much worse. And 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 I guess tied into that is is what role do you see um, 
does the rise of secularism play uh, in the negative script for masculinity we're seeing today? Yeah, I'll start with the dads. Um, my One of my sons loved the Berenstein Bears. Mm-hmm. And that's another example where the dad was always the idiot. Even the kids <laughs> are smart. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but you know what? There's a history to that. Most people don't know where it's coming from. Again, you have to go back to the Industrial Revolution because fathers were taken out of the home. We're so used to that. We don't realize what a shock it was at the time. I have quotes from people in the 19th century saying, you know, the, the greatest source of domestic sorrow, to quote one article, the greatest source of domestic sorrow in our day is that our fathers are not home all week. Mm-hmm. You know, they're basically home on the weekends and that's it. Yeah. And even some of the things that the laws that were passed, um, like we think of the blue laws, you know, the shops should close on Sunday. Mm-hmm. We think that was for Christians. No, that was for fathers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Actually, historically, that was passed because they wanted one day, for, but fathers didn't have to work. It could be home with their children. And a 19th century psychologist, the leading psychologist of the day, in fact, said, never before has the American boy been so wild because they were growing up without their father's supervision huh. and, and so half orphaned. That was his term. They are half orphaned because their father's no longer in the home. And then he said, and they've been left up to female guidance in home, school and church. And so people were very concerned about it at the time. And uh, like I said, uh, boys started growing up without their father's guidance. And so, Boys, people began to complain that boys were becoming wild and unruly and misbehaving. And so what happened when those boys grew up? That They brought that sort of misbehaving wild behavior with them. And yeah. so the 19th century saw a huge increase in gambling, drinking, fighting, crime, prostitution. And a lot of it was because these young men were coming in from the countryside and, you know, and going and, and having not been trained well, you know, with a father in the home, they went crazy. And so mm-hmm. as a result, but as a result, the 19th century was also the, the era of vast number of reform movements, because in response to men's behavior growing worse, there were these reform movements to try to encourage them to shape up, stop drinking, stop gambling stop going to prostitutes. And so the kind of attention between men and women uh, dates back to then, you know, the Me Too movement, (laughs) it's deeper roots are back in the 19th century when a lot of these reform movements were driven by women Mm -hmm. and they were addressing what were traditionally male vices. As one historian puts it, there was little doubt as to the sex of the tavern keeper, the slave master, the drunkard and the seducer. So a lot of the negative language comes out of that era as well. As the women started to say, you know, our men are misbehaving. And you used an important word, secular. This was also when American society was secularizing. Because as men went out to the workforce, you know, and a, a, a large public sphere developed. You know, when work was done in the home, there wasn't a sharp public private divide. But now there became this very sharp public-private divide where people began to say, well, these public institutions like businesses and industry, financial institutions, uh, universities, and the state, that they should, be, they should all operate by scientific principles by which they meant value-free. You know, don't bring your right. private values into the public realm. Yeah. And since it was men who were getting that secularized education, working in that secularized realm, they did become secular before women did. And so that was mm. part of what was, I'm glad you mentioned that word because that was part of the dyma- dynamic as well. Men were behaving worse because they were no longer felt, they no longer felt as bound by biblical ethic. And so we're, through my book, I, I give several stages of the sort of secularizing of the masculine script. Um, but it's, again, it starts with the industrial revolution. And so the, the roots are very deep and to, to stand against any social trend, we need to know where did it come from, you know, how did it develop so that we can stand against it. And, and of course, mm-hmm. in this case, the root is fathers being disconnected from their families, which gives us a pretty good clue of what the solution has to be. Yeah. 
Well, you're just barely touching on it, but your work on the sacred secular divide is just phenomenal. I just commend your uh, book, Total Truth, um, to listeners, um, but but it, it ties into the toxic war on masculinity, too. I just think your your work in that sphere is just excellent, excellent. Um, um, it's it's tricky to talk about uh, about. Um, <laughs> I have I have to be like careful. Like I I feel like there is this fine line to walk here. Of um, I mean, the twentieth century was a century of women gaining rights that they very much should have possessed had um, a, a sense of equality that I think goes back to made in the image of God equality as well. Like there were inequalities in society and there's continued to be some. Um, and so the 20th century saw, you know, some of these feminist waves of movements happening where, you know, um, the right to, you know, we're getting into right to vote. And of course, earlier on, like, like pro- owning property and, you know, some issues about equal pay for equal work are still things that matter. And so, um, you know, here I am, uh, a man talking about uh, a masculinity crisis, and I'm not trying in any way to negate um, the quest for equality that women have fought for and deserved. Um, I have to at the same time say that we are in a masculinity crisis right now. Um that isn't actually getting much attention as, as you say in the book where you note that men are falling behind in education, employment, health, even life expectancy. Now, um, why um, can you explain a little bit about like, what, how would you frame, um, the masculinity price, uh, crisis that we're in right now? Yeah, exactly. Um, Uh, Men are falling behind at all levels. Uh, First, education. They're falling behind in kindergarten because they don't have the the same motor control, fine motor control that girls do. So they can't operate as scissors as well. (laughs) So they're already starting to feel behind in kindergarten. And all Mm. through um, grade school and high school, they have lower test scores and lower, lower grades. And in college now, the average college is 60% female and 40% male. And so there are colleges that are quietly trying to recruit more men. Harvard, for example, is trying to recruit more men because they know that if, if they don't, pretty soon women won't come either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and smaller schools, like when I first started teaching at Houston Christian University, um, we were 70, 30, 70% Whoa. female. Okay. And so we're trying, we are also trying to recruit more men. And we did it by starting a football team. Excellent. And starting a, an engineering department. <laughs> so, yep, well done. Uh, which I, 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 you know, I, I totally support. I think these are good things. At any rate, and, and then, well, there's more women than men in graduate school and professional school as well. And then after school, yes, men are falling behind both relative to women and relative to where men used to be in terms of mental illness, suicide, drug mm. and alcohol addiction, crime. Right, prison. 90% yeah. of prison inmates are male. Um, and unemployment. This one, they, it took a little harder for them to find because it's not showing up in the normal uh, unemployment statistics because they stopped looking for work. But when they dug deeper, we are now being told that male unemployment levels are at Great Depression era levels. Great wow. Depression era. Wow. I mean, this was a shock. We all remember what a crisis yeah. that was. And then you mentioned life expectancy. So at women's has stayed the same. It's only male life expectancy that has gone down. And so there's a magazine called The New Scientist that said the major demographic factor in early death now is being male. Hmm. So the good news is um, for a long time, as you said, it was very hard to get anyone to pay attention to this. As, as one of my students put it, we, we figure, you know, men make it to the top anyway, so why should we help them? But fortunately, um, this is this is a book that's come out since my book, so even more recently. It's by uh, Richard Reeves. It's called Of Boys and Men, and he's at the Brookings hmm. Institution, which is a left-of-center organization. Because up until now, you know, only conservatives have focused on the male crisis, and, and hmm. so, you know, people could disregard it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, politicized. 
but he's not. He's left the center. Um, and he has come out with a book called Of Boys and Men about how, how they're falling behind and how it's time to have compassion hmm. on boys and men. Hmm. You know, that it is time to have some uh, maybe some programs that are specifically oriented toward helping them. The first book written on the subject was The War Against Boys by Christina Hoff Summers. And back then she said the wider culture was not open to any programs for boys. You know, if you, if you proposed them, you would be shot down by women's groups, you know, feminist groups. But I think it's a really big, it's a big shift then that Richard Reeves could come out with a book. Um, and he's even started it in an organization just to help men and boys. Oh, wow. um, he's left the Brookings Institution and started his own group. So that's good news. It's finally becoming an issue that both political sides, you know, it's okay to acknowledge that boys are boys and men, they need their own, they need their own support too. Girls had title nine, 1972. They poured millions of dollars into curriculum and workshops and training materials for girls. The 1994 gender equity act also poured millions of dollars. And that's great. You know, it's wonderful. Nobody anticipated, though, that girls would surpass boys. They thought they were helping them catch up, mm-hmm. but they caught up and then surpassed them. Yeah. So that now, oh, the numbers are, um, it used to be that, oh, I, I, think it's, I think it's high school graduation. It's either that or college. I'm not quite sure. Um, it used to be that boys were ahead by 13%. Now girls are ahead by 15%. So the numbers have shifted and girls are actually doing better than boys used to do. Mm. So that's why it's time for us to say we had programs to help girls and that was great, Mm. but maybe we need some specialized programs to help boys as well now. Yeah. No, that was an interesting insight. I mean, even, you know, it's, it's so funny to think about kindergarten boys with scissors and just not being able to use them as well. But I thought you drew out some interesting things I hadn't really thought much about, but essentially boys acting out was like, I forget the phrase that you use, but something about like, they were just, they were not as good girls or something like that. Like the, 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 the standard in the classroom was be like the girls. You have too much energy. You're not paying attention enough or, you know, some of the, some, what we even know of is as innate wirings were seen as these negatives in the classroom, be more like the girls. And there is a challenge, I think, to, Yes, there's the toxic masculinity. We're going to go there next. We're going to talk about some real negative things. Um, but something about just being inherently male, there there is a shadow over it now, isn't there, of innately wrong, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. the, the um, quote that you were referring to is a psychologist who said, in the classroom, boys are treated as defective girls. Defective girls, <laughs> right. And huh. so, you know, I had to put this at the front of the book too. I had to say, okay, let's just start with biology, you know, the, the bare biological facts are that men are bigger, stronger, mm-hmm. faster. They have more fast twitch muscles. That's the word I had to learn. It means they can react more quickly. And because of testosterone, you know, on average, they are more aggressive, more risk-taking. And this is the creational givens. You know, this is how God made men. This is prior to the fall. <laughs> and so we have to start by just affirming these as good qualities. And I, I don't think our culture affirms those as good qualities. I, I think that, you know, men are often taught that somehow these are bad things and they need to, they need to control them or get rid of them. Um, and so I think that's an important starting point, just basic creational givens. And and while we're on creation, I also take people back multiple times in my book to the, the cultural mandate. The yeah. cultural mandate is in Genesis as well. Yeah. And it's a really good way to counter secular definitions of masculinity. You know, the Andrew Tate style right now of, you know, don't get married, sleep with as many women as you can. You know, that's just the male nature. Men are just naturally sexually promiscuous and so on. No, take them back to Genesis because that's where we find out how God made men, mm-hmm. right? Uh, God has created the universe. He's created the first human couple. And what is the first thing he says to them? He gives them their job description. You know, mm-hmm. What's your purpose? Why did I make you? Yep. 
and he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And in the highly streamlined language of Genesis, we can unpack that with several layers because obviously all the social institutions historically grow out of the family. And so be fruitful and multiply can include, you know, the family becomes a clan, becomes a village, becomes a nation. And you have social institutions for specific purposes, like we need a state, we need a church, we need a school, we need a marketplace. And so it's a very rich understanding of what men are called to, men and women, but we're talking about men, that men are called to build all the social institutions, as well as the laws and treaties and constitutions that govern them. And then subdue the earth refers to harnessing the natural resources. Mm -hmm. So this, most cultures start with agriculture, but then mining and technology and writing books and building buildings and inventing computers and composing music. Mm -hmm. I had a student once who said, oh, come on, composing music. And I said, well, I play the violin. (laughs) What's the violin made out of? Hmm. Wood. Mm -hmm. And what's the bow made out of? Horse hair. So all the transcendent beauty we associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. And so this is often called, theologians call it the cultural mandate. And the the point is that humans, you know, God's first call on, on human beings as a, as a race, you know, the human race as a whole was to create cultures, you know, to build civilizations, to make history. Mm -hmm. And so Coming back to that again and again gives men, that's a big vision. That's a big enough vision, I think, to give men a sense of uh, purpose and accomplishment and achievement and impact and all the things that men do aspire to have. Yeah. And this is such an exciting, I love talking cultural mandate. It's so exciting and pointing people back. This is the way God made it. This is, this is what he says from the start. It's so exciting. And it's taking, yes, those innate resources in the earth that God has created, but it's also taking the innate resources within man, within what makes you male and harnessing those for the good of your family and for the society. And that's really, really exciting stuff. Um, those innate traits can be harnessed for great harm. And I think that's part of the reason why the talk of toxic toxic masculinity is out there so much. And I think one of the things you do so well in the book is, is you don't turn a blind eye to very real issues, uh, such as domestic abuse, sexual abuse. In fact, um, Yeah, I really appreciated you. I mean, it was hard to read, but you reading about your own experience as a child growing up, I thought that was very vulnerable and and also helped set the table to to talk about these things. Um, Just in a, yeah, I could see how I I could read you uh, tackling these things in a very caring way. Um, Would you say that there are any truly toxic traits that some men exhibit? Um, Like, what is warranted critique of men in society today? Um, um, you know, where is maybe society getting it wrong as they maybe put a blanket over all men, but there are some very real harmful dangers here. Can we just talk about some of the ugliness and, and why there is this? Because some folks will listen to this and be like, yeah, men, I, I want to cancel men. You know, men are everything that's wrong. Um, because there are, there maybe they have been severely hurt by some men. How do, how do we, how do we interact with those things? Of there, there are things here that are horrible. They've gone horribly wrong and have harmed people. Now, how do we interact with that side of this whole conversation? Yeah, that, that is why I started with my own personal story, because I grew up in a very abusive home. Books on abuse will sometimes ask, was it open hand or closed fist? Mm. And uh, and it was closed fist. He would, uh, my father would um, extend one knuckle a little farther to make a sharper stab of pain. Wow. So he was punching and kicking us. And, um, and as you can imagine, as I grew up, I ricocheted off into extreme feminism Mm-hmm. For many years, because I did have this notion that men are basically bad, and um, and and these feminist books reinforce that. <laughs> My husband would say, every time you read one of those books, you get angry. <laughs> he could tell I get angry every time I read one, but I always read them. Um, I always had one. I had. I always had a feminist book on my bedside table. Um, so I was very much into it. And then I became a Christian and had to rethink from scratch, right? All the way, uh, as I put it in my 
introduction in a sense I've been writing this book my whole life yeah because it, it takes a long time to really work through to a positive biblical healthy view of masculinity mm-hmm. um, if you ever had childhood trauma you know that this takes years and years mm-hmm. I could not have written this book earlier than I did um, and, and so uh, my own spiritual life has included a strong component of spiritual psychological healing. Mm-hmm. And one psychologist interviewed me and he, he put it this way. He said, um, well, at least we know you're not writing from some ivory tower. You know, you're writing from the trenches. Yeah, no, that's you know, right. You, you've been there. And But the second reason that I deal with this issue is because Christian men tend to fall into two different camps, too. Um, you know, Christian men, according to sociological studies, Christian men who are very uh, active and involved and attend church regularly test out very high. But Christian men who are nominal Christians, who, who's, you know, who identifies evangelicals, but who attend church rarely, if at all, and it's more of a family background, cultural background, they actually test out as the worst. You know, they, they test out as worse than secular men, which is kind yeah. of a surprise. Yeah. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least amount of time with their kids. They divorce at a higher rate than even secular couples, 20% higher. And they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any group in America, even higher than secular men. Mm. So after giving these sociological uh, facts, I had to deal with domestic violence. Otherwise, it would look like I was just sweeping it under the carpet. So I do have two chapters at the end of the book on domestic violence and how the church can deal with it more effectively. Because up until very recently, church leaders tended to blame the woman, right? In other words, if you would just be more submissive, if you would be more loving, if you would be more forgiving, if you would make his favorite foods, you know, then he wouldn't be provoked. You know, you're provoking him. And I give lots of stories of women who got that kind of counsel, and I did too. Um, and, And it's only very recently, again, this is a good time to write the book, because theologians and therapists who are Christian are just recently starting to write books saying, no, actually, when there's when there's genuine sin in a relationship, it's not the victim's fault. That's right. You know, yeah. The answer is what Jesus said in Matthew 18, which is hold the sinner accountable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if he doesn't listen to you, bring a few more witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, bring it before the church. And then if he doesn't listen to them, that might be a time for discipline. So Matthew 18 has not been applied to marriage, oddly enough. But fortunately, in recent years, if, you, if, you're, if you're dealing with this issue, buy the book just for those two chapters, yep. because I got all the best resources on the subject in my end notes um, so that you can find the good people who are doing very, very good work now on domestic violence in a way that just wasn't the case even a few years ago. Yeah. No, I really appreciate those two chapters. Um, this is something just our elder team at my own church have been uh, studying and doing research ourselves so that um, we respond in ways that that do not f- cause further harm to victims, but have processes that... Um, that are there to help and, and uh, to intervene wisely. Sadly, we've just seen so many stories where essentially they're just supposed to, um, they should be victims so that, you know, the church or the, the, whatever the, the institution isn't, you know, we don't want it to be blemished. So we're going to sweep this under the rug and we're not going to address it. It's just awful. Like we actually, I think our, our Christian faith gives us the resources to, um, to believe and do justice and to trust that, pursuing truth and clarity um, is actually the right approach. And, and sadly, we've, we've seen that not be the case. So thank you for resourcing to that end as well. You started to get into data that I found fascinating. And this is the, this, we'll, we'll, we'll close with this section, but this is, this has been a heavy episode, but this, there's this, this is great stuff. Like, well, well, um, there are these, there's narratives, I hear them all the time around the church that essentially like evangelical men are patriarchal and abusive. Um, you write about research that debunks that theory, um, I guess sort of, because you started to parse out uh, two different trends. The <laughs> fact that committed Christian men who attend church regularly 
are the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. They score the highest in all these categories. And then, of course, you talked about the nominal and they actually score worse. Can you maybe expand on the disparity in narrative uh, and, and, and maybe explain a little bit more about those findings? Yeah, the fact that nominals are worse than secular men probably explains why there's been a negative stereotype. But the, but it is yep. true that the cultural message has been that evangelical men are, are exhibit A of toxic masculinity. It was easy to find examples for the book, but I will give you just one. This is the, uh, the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed mm. the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And the thing is that so social scientists were reading these accusations and asking, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. And I quote some dozen or so studies on evangelical men that totally debunk the uh, secular narrative. What they found is that, as you, as you mentioned, men who attend church regularly, um, and you know, who are really committed to their Christian faith, test out on the top as the most loving husbands and fathers. Their wives report the highest level of happiness. Hmm. And by the way, they do interview the wives separately. I, I get pushed back on that. <laughs> of course, she said she's happy. Yeah, Her yeah. husband's sitting right there. <laughs> yeah, right. But no, these are large. Most of these studies were done on large objective databases, like the General Social Survey, which comes out of the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, they spend evangelical fathers spend the most time with their children, um, three point five hours more per week than secular fathers. Evangelical couples have the lowest rate of divorce, 35% lower than secular couples, and yeah. they have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence of any major group in America. So, uh, so this was surprising. I mean, I, I kind of stumbled across this. <laughs> I, I didn't go looking for it because I didn't know it existed. Right. And most people still don't. You know, I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this. And I thought mm -hmm. we needed to get this out into the churches as well as into the public. I'll give you one quote, because sometimes a quote will crystallize it. Um, the largest study was done by Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. So this is from a New York Times article that he wrote. And he said, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Uh, and they focus on the wives, of course, because the assumption is that these marriages are oppressive to the to the wives. But no, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of women who hold conservative gender values and attend church regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. Wow. And then he turns to his secular colleagues this is actually my favorite part because, of course, sociology is a very secular discipline. And he says, a direct quote again, academics need to cast aside their prejudices against religious conservatives and against evangelicals in particular. Huh. Because Protestant evangelical married men with children are consistently the most loving and engaged husbands and fathers. Hmm. By the way, he's not Protestant himself. <laughs> I should well. point out he's Catholic, so he's not just defending his tribe. He may right. not be entirely happy that Catholics he's, he's test out lower. He's defending his data. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at, at any rate, we need to get this into the churches. Uh, one of my mm -hmm. graduate students um, is the head of a large women's ministry at a, a large um, Baptist church, you know, mega church nearby. And she said on Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell the women they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. Classic. Yeah, that's right. So thought, okay. Uh, that's kind of true. No more scolding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so we need to get this data out there so that they're not yeah. scolding. They're encouraging and supporting men who are doing a good job. Yeah. Uh, as well as then, by the way, also reaching out to these nominals who are at the fringes of the Christian world, but who are worse than secular men. How do we have an effective discipleship program well said. You know, to draw those men in and, and to help them have a biblical view yeah. 
of masculinity. Yeah. Well, as we start to land the plane here, can we, um, let's parse this out just a little bit more. It seems as though these nominal Christian men, they tick the box because they grew up going to a Baptist church or um, they get dragged there by their wife when she, if she nags them enough, fine, every eight weeks I'll go. It's like, he's not, he's not an embodiment of a Christ follower. He's tick, but he is ticking the box of, you know, evangelical Christian or whatever. Um, it seems as though Christian, um, the scriptures or church culture have the resources there that he can latch on to that accentuate his abuse, right? Is you're supposed to submit to me. And, and, and he uses that as a weapon. Whereas if you read it in its context, that is no weapon. Um, the husband's supposed to die for his wife. <laughs> He's supposed to lay down his life for her. And, you know, but he, he'll use that kind of language as a spiritual manipulation. But then there's this data about committed evangelical Christian men and they score better, which to me says Christianity has, has the resources. Christianity has the tools. We have been made in the image of God and what he puts forth as the way to live is the answer. What would you say as we start to land the plane in terms of what does Christianity have to offer in this space of masculinity? Yeah, let me say a few more words about these nominal mm-hmm. yep. Christians. By the way, my students don't know what the word nominal means. So I explained to them M N O M is Latin for name. So it means in name only. In name only. And yeah. you have to realize in these large um public objective databases, it's easy to check the Baptist box when they say what's your religion, right? Yep. You know, there's no there's you don't have to have much commitment to check a box. Um but what they're finding is, I do get people asking me, why would they be worse than secular men, though? And it's because they take words like headship and submission, and because they're not really integrated into the church, they will fill those terms with content from the secular worldview. Uh-huh. Yeah. And well so said. the secular worldview is telling them, you know, the, the Andrew Tate of the world, or there's a new one, um, Myron Gaines has been announced by the New York Post as the new Andrew Tate. And he says the same thing, you know, men are naturally sexually promiscuous um, and women just have to accept that. And, um, and even, well, I'd like to say a few more words about the secular view, but, but the point is that these men who just check a box easily just pick up these messages from the secular world and throw a Christian term on top of it and end up being worse than secular men. They see the typical secular guy who's maybe hitting his wife and kids feels no religious justification for it. But the nominal Christian feels religious justification for it. And so he'll say, like you said a moment ago, she wouldn't submit to me, so I had to put her in a place. He will actually end up being worse. He gets the the worst of both worlds. And so that's really what's surprising about it is that the man who has a, an a inkling of Christianity, but is giving um, secular content to the words ends up being worse. That's true. That's helpful. So what does true Christianity have to offer in this, this broken world of masculinity? Well, you know, everyone says, and I do too in my book, we need to go back to Jesus and look at, how Jesus modeled masculinity, because uh, it, it, we we don't really understand how much he modeled it unless we understand what he was reacting against in both the Jewish culture and the Greco-Roman culture, because in both of those cultures, women had very little value, especially the Greco-Roman culture. Women had very little status, very little value. Um, women, first of all, a lot of them didn't even make it. Abortion and infanticide were very widespread, and it was usually against baby girls. So it turns out it was very rare for a Roman family to have more than one daughter because they'd have a token daughter, but then the rest, you know, they would, they would, um, it, my, my students again didn't even know the word exposure. That means they put them out into the, into nature to be eaten mm-hmm. by wild animals and killed mm-hmm. by the elements and so on. Mm-hmm. And by the way, sometimes they would be rescued by brothels. Bye and raised as sex slaves. So, um, and certainly in the um, Greco-Roman world, 
uh, it was just assumed that men would have sex with just about anyone. It was totally socially acceptable for men to have mistresses and courtesans and go to prostitutes. Uh, and, and actually the most common form of adultery was with a person's slaves, the man's slaves, uh, both male and female, because homosexuality was rampant. And both children and adults, because pedophilia was rampant as well. So this is the world that Jesus came into yeah. and, and treated women with respect. For example, even in Jewish culture, you were not supposed to speak to a woman in public. Jesus spoke to women in public, you know, starting with a woman at the well. The woman at the well, I know when I was growing up, they always mentioned that she was a Samaritan. But you know what the text mentions? They, it says when the disciples came back, they were surprised that he was talking to a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, the text focuses on the fact that she was a woman, not a Samaritan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what surprised them the most. Mm-hmm. And of course, not only were you not supposed to t- talk to them, you certainly weren't supposed to touch them. And when Jesus touched people to heal them, many of them were women. I mean, it specifically says it in some cases, like Peter's mother-in-law, you know. Yep. Um, so, and he, even even Jewish people uh, were, were, did not value teaching women. You were not supposed to teach women the Torah. But there were many people, many Jewish people who thought that was just too degrading to the Torah <laughs> to have a woman. Um, and so G- Jesus, you know, obviously taught women there were women in the crowd of 5,000, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, it specifically yeah. says men and women. Mm-hmm. And of course, the paradigmatic example is, is Mary sitting yeah. at his feet yeah. and sitting at his feet was the term for being a disciple. So he was treating Mary as a disciple. Mm-hmm. And then, and he gave women a lot of his greatest theological truths. Um, to speaking of Mary, he also gave Martha a wonderful theological truth. You know, the same woman that he had scolded <laughs> for being too concerned about housekeeping, he then turned around and said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Mm-hmm. You know, he gave some of his greatest teachings to women. Yeah. And of course, people now say, um, people highlight this a lot these days, that the people who were first at the tomb, first at the resurrection, last at the tomb, and first at the empty tomb uh, were women. You know, they stayed around after the men fled. Uh, Jesus' crucifixion, and a lot of, you know, it's part of apologetics now. Standard apologetics for the resurrection now is nobody would make up that women were the first witnesses because back then women's word was not considered trustworthy in, in a court of law. And so there's no way if they had just been making up the story that, that they would have had women be the first witnesses. Mm. So there's so many ways in which the New Testament yep. is is positive towards women that we recognize more if we compare it to the period of the time, you know, how women were treated at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think of Paul in first Corinthians seven, you know, saying to, um, saying to women, saying to wives, your body is not your own. It's your husband's. And the, 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 the listeners would have been like, uh-huh. Yeah. That's Uh because that was standard practice. And then he goes on to say, husband's, your body is not your own. It's your wives. Well, that was a revolution, you know? Exactly. And, um, and so what we sometimes think of as, well, of course, well, of, 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 of course, women are equal. Of course, um, there, there should not be promiscuity. Of course, these things we say, of course, because precisely because of Christianity, um, those were not the standards in the Greco-Roman world. And in India and China today, there is a lot of infanticide and, and, and many millions upon millions upon millions of boys and a severe lack of girls. And, and so, but, but Christianity has actually drawn out dignity for all male and female, um, there is there is unity, human beings made in the image of God, and distinction not to be washed away as in, inconsequential, but to utilize those for things like the cultural mandate, for the, the you know what you talked about earlier as a good man about you know provision and protection and um, using their strength for good, and so. Ah, what a important book. Um, what a delight to talk to you, Nancy. You're the, you're the mother of a, of a couple boys. I would just love to hear your insights as we close. What would you say to any Christian dads listening who, 
you know, want to be godly, engaged fathers? Are there any practical steps? What would be maybe a final word to them? Yes. Uh, one of the th things that's unique about my book is I have a lot of data, right? yeah. a lot of studies. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's the most fact-based book I've written. And so I want to give you a study done on how parents succeed in passing along their religious faith, their spiritual con convictions mm. Mm. to their children. It was a 35-year longitudinal study, won all kinds of awards because it was so extensive. And the researchers came up with two surprising findings. First of all, in terms of passing on their religious faith, fathers matter more than mothers. Fathers matter more. And uh, my, my female students say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Mothers matter. But if the father is, stays true to his religious convictions, the kids will follow him. If the mother does, they will, but at, at a lower rate. If the father is a church-going, strongly committed Christian, the children will follow him. Mm. But the second thing they found out was what matters is the quality of the relationship. The father can be a pillar of the church, you know, can be a moral exemplar, can have perfect doctrine and theology. But if he's perceived as cold and distant, the kids will not follow him. They won't. Wow. It's the quality of the relationship that matters. You know, if, the, if it's a warm, loving, close relationship, then the, child, the children will follow their father. And what I thought was interesting is a, a similar study done just which is relevant here because it was just strictly on how do you produce masculine sons? Hmm. So, so this had nothing to do with religion. Um, just how do you produce masculine sons? And this research is in a book. Uh, I think the book is called why fathers matter. At any rate, they found the same thing. They found that the father's own masculinity did not matter. What mattered is if he had a close, warm, loving relationship with his son. Mm. That would produce a boy who had a strong, secure sense of masculine identity. Mm. So that was surprising, too. Nobody expected that. They thought, you know, maybe the, maybe the dad has to be Clint Eastwood, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, the father's own masculinity did not matter. Everything comes down to the relationship, the loving relationship with his son. Mm. Oh, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Nancy. I, I am so thankful for your ministry. I'm envious of these students of yours. You talk about so much that they get to sit in classrooms and talk about this stuff with you all the time. And I love how you reference them so much in your books. And I've personally benefited so much from them. I'm excited to commend them to my listeners. You do such great work. And it's been a pleasure to chat with you again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, I really appreciate your questions. The very, very probing, very insightful questions. So it's, it's been a lot of fun. As Professor Piercy was just sharing some thoughts for dads there at the end, I was like getting misty eyed. Um, just such a powerful word. And I, I hope that you hear um, a, a great deal of hope. Uh, hope for men, uh, encouragement to committed Christian men, and a call to the church at large. I highly recommend Nancy's book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Uh, you can purchase that and many of her other excellent books like Love Thy Body and Total Truth. You can buy those on Amazon or wherever quality books are sold. You can follow her on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Nancy R. Piercy, uh, where she's always posting really interesting stuff. Um, at the tail end of the interview, I realized um, that I never pushed record on Zoom. So sadly, there will be no video version of this episode, which I feel totally defeated about because there is so much good stuff there. I would have loved to uh, push on to social media and, and post to YouTube like I normally do. But it's just the audio podcast this time around, sadly. And hopefully I find the record button next time. Speaking of next time, next up on the pod, I will talk about the Christmas story from the Bible that almost never gets talked about. And that's the one found in Revelation chapter 12. Thanks for listening to Deep Thoughts. I hope it helps you in fostering deep faith. Deep faith.